0: Phoenix.html is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things movies, music, comics, media, and more, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Hey everybody, I'm Nico. And I'm Kevo.
1: And this is Phoenix.html, I guess.
0: Hey, we signed up for this, you know. I know, but like, I love Jean, and I love her too much to keep watching these.
1: We signed up to highlight all the reasons why The Dark Phoenix has just been horribly bastardized throughout film and television media. And unfortunately, the modern X-Men film franchise is absolutely no exception to that problem. I just want to go on
0: record as saying I don't think you can blame Famke Jensen or Sophie Turner because I really do believe both of them are working with a really limited script. If I am walking away from this experiment with anything in mind, it's that it's not hard to tell a Jean Grey story, but goddamn, it's really hard to tell a Phoenix story. Everybody is always so excited about, I guess there's only one way to put it. Everybody's always so excited about the phoenix come shot that they forget to have any phoenix foreplay along the way. They just really want to have that big bird burn everything. She has never had the opportunity to develop phoenix-like power in one movie and then not begin to manifest phoenix abilities
1: till the next movie. She is always phoenix from the moment she's phoenix. And you're right. And unfortunately, there's no real characterization given before she starts to go completely bird crazy. There's absolutely more characterization given to Scott in this movie than either Storm or Gene. And Storm is one of the four horsemen, and Jean is going to be the focus of the next film. So like, weird choice, I guess, all around. Now, We're clearly getting ahead of ourselves because we have yet to even say which movie we're
0: talking about. So far, we've covered the nine episodes of the X-Men animated series that encompass the Phoenix Saga and Dark Phoenix Saga. We've taken a look at the original X-Men trilogy, which is X-Men, X-Men 2, sometimes listed as X2, X-Men United, and then X-Men The Last Stand, which is certainly not X3, as we learn. We skipped all the solo films and we jumped right ahead to The new X-Men trilogy, which consists of X-Men First Class, Days of Future Past, and X-Men Apocalypse, of which we came to realize Jean Grey appears in a grand total of about 40 minutes of one of these films.
1: Which, you know, when you think about it, Jean Grey is important for approximately four minutes across the first three X-Men movies as well, so it's not even like it's different. From the last trilogy, and the goddamn of it is that you'd think the people who made these things would have learned from the last time they messed it all up. Because apart from X-Men First Class, Days of Future Past and Apocalypse are the same writing and directing team, basically, as the original X-Men films. Which, you know, how do you keep getting invited back to mangle these stories? I They're successful, Before we
0: can get any further into this mess of a situation, Kevo, do you have any of that amazing BTS you love to bring to the table?
1: Honestly, because it's the same creative team, I really didn't look much further into them. I discussed them on the first episode. Matthew Vaughn himself, who directed X-Men First Class, is a name unto himself having directed Kick-Ass. So talking about in that regard, This is the X-Men by way of the modern
0: superhero. We've commented that Iron Man was a real change for the depiction of superheroes, and the Marvel Cinematic Universe kept things at a steady pace and a strong clip, advancing with its audience. The X-Men movies seemed pretty stagnated, but bringing in a guy like Matthew Vaughn, whose voice was capable of modernizing the superhero via Mark Millar's kick-ass, was a pretty good move because it allowed the X-Men to transform as a franchise.
1: And I really think First Class did do a lot to transform X-Men as a franchise. I don't know if they were trying in any way, shape, or form to connect back to the original trilogy. They pretty much kick its ass right out the door within five minutes by introducing the concept of Charles and Mystique knew each other growing up. I remember in the theaters, I had started to get to know X-Men a little bit better by this point because I'd known you for a while. And it was a really trippy fucking choice, man. And then in Days of Future Past, to try and find a way to reconcile everything they did in first class with everything that came later, to see Patrick Stewart be like, I grew up with Mystique, even though I never once talked to her in the original trilogy. Well, like, I guess it doesn't not fit. It's more... Why the fuck would Charles never have mentioned that at any point at all? But it's not impossible. There's that one scene
0: where in X-Men The Last Stand where Magneto's like, Oh, get her. Somebody put bleach on Mystique and now I don't want her. And I'm sorry, but that moment, knowing all of this history should be so much more! It is unbelievable how hard first class works to disavow the original franchise in every way it can and it is by far my favorite of the x franchise
1: me too it was around the time that i was discovering tumblr so i definitely enjoyed a lot of gifts of hank and alex at that time to quote don amigo pretty much everyone on that show could get it except you know cassidy sorry cassidy Excellent choices for that new cast, though, and I think one of the things that has made this new X franchise so successful is specifically its cast and these new takes on these characters, which is why there has been so much focus on Jennifer Lawrence's Mystique, both in Days of Future Past and Apocalypse, as a completely different version of Mystique from either the original films or anything from the comics, and I really do enjoy this version of the character. But again, I I can't stop saying it. Weird choices to make to make these things so different from both the comics and any version that came before it. They also went out of their way to pick some of the strangest, most obscure
0: mutants they could. Inclusions like Havoc and Banshee were long-missing elements of the X-Men that offered it a little bit more fan credibility. However, less conventional choices like Angel Salvatore, Azazel, Darwin... These were just really interesting picks. Very different than what the audience was expecting.
1: Riptide always wearing that tight little
0: suit. Yeah, Riptide's pretty hot in this movie. That's, that's, he's way too hot in this movie. And what is his past again? So he's part of this really weird moment in X-Men comic book history where a whole bunch of bad guys got brought in by Mr. Sinister. I know he has the greatest name ever. And they're sent to kill the Morlocks, yes, same idea. A bunch of mutants living underground. He's part of, like, the greatest massacre of, like, children mutants that happens for quite a
1: while. And, yeah, ultimately it all gets pinned on Gambit. You know, it was fun to watch First Class with Jonah because even though it is our favorite of the X-Men films, it was hysterical to see him react to things like... The American CIA agent Moira McTaggart and the, like, I guess 16-ish year old Cassidy as Banshee when Jonah is much more familiar with those characters being on a much more even playing field and Moira getting to have her actual foreign accent. I still don't understand why Roseburn had to be American in this. She couldn't at least also be British? Jonah just kept going. No, that's not... I don't... No, that's... mm. Provide a little backstory for both Moira McTaggart and Cassidy, as most HTML listeners are probably not as fervently familiar with the X-Men comics.
0: So Banshee is one of the first non-X-Men mutants to eventually join the team. He was introduced in the original era. He helped the X-Men fight Magneto in a group called Factor 3. He later on joined the X-Men where he met Charles Xavier's best friend in the whole world, Moira McTaggart. Moira McTaggart is an award-winning Nobel Prize scientist, geneticist, mega super lady. She has no powers, but if you want to check us out on Excess for Podcast, you can hear all about how we've determined that her power is running into a room with a machine gun, screaming, because she's real good at it.
1: And, you know, at the very least, they were trying to boost... Moira by making her a CIA agent, I guess. You know, it's a lot weirder to have a geneticist wielding a machine gun than it is a CIA agent. But, like, why is she still not at least foreign? I I I don't know. And that actually does create
0: my first point of problem with First Class. I love First Class. I really do. But how does this work with future Moira? And... We get a whole bunch of other people that I don't understand the sliding time frame on, and it's almost like the first trilogy and this trilogy can't be connected, and there's some stuff at the end of... Okay, can we just want to jump ahead? Because there's no gene in this movie, so I guess we should talk about Days of Future Past, or the movie that ends in a way that makes it impossible to have any subsequent movies, so we just need to pretend the end of this movie never happened, even though it is the payoff of the original trilogy hidden in this movie.
1: Well, what's really funny is I feel like... The thing that they are most trying to disavow is X-Men The Last Stand. And yet they mine it for material. They specifically have Logan show Charles his memories of having to kill adult Jean. You used a clip from The Last Stand, so if you want to pretend it didn't happen, it's really weird that you keep referencing it. Well, I think it's not that they pretend
0: it didn't happen, it's they're like, trying to only acknowledge it as often as they have to so that they can make it that it never happened. Which is like the shittiest, meanest
1: thing to do to another creator. Even though the movie sucked, you should work with what you've got, not obliterate it. But then they go out of their way to specifically invalidate certain things about it, like the fact that Angel should not at all... Be able to be an apocalypse unless that is a different person than Warren Worthington III from X Men: The Last Stand, and frankly, unless this is a different version than Kurt Wagner, I could believe that this is a different version of Kurt Wagner because Mystique is different, and she could have. Spoiler alert for anyone who might not be aware that Mystique is in the comics Nightcrawler's mother but. with a zezel. But, you know, sure, that could have happened at a different point in time, but really nothing should have made Warren Worthington be born earlier, to have his mutation earlier, to be some sort of weird cage fighter in Berlin.
0: That also brings me to one of the other things that you have to acknowledge the minute Brian Zenger takes back over this franchise with Days of Future Past, we begin to see a recycling of the same ideas. These cage match scenes feel very similar to the Wolverine cage match scenes from X-Men the First, and not in the sort of dynamic way that some of the Sebastian Shaw stuff, oh yeah, that's how they use Sebastian Shaw. Kevin Bacon plays Sebastian Shaw, the man who can eat energy. There's things about that that is it's very similar to Magneto's plan from X-Men 1, but with the Brian Singer films, it's a little too on the nose. Maybe because it's the same
1: visual narrative. I do have to say that the Sebastian shaw stuff was really interesting to me in first class after having watched the x-men the animated series episodes because i think shaw's powers in the first class film are weirdly reflective of what his powers were in the animated series you even commented when we watched that that those weren't what shaw's powers were but it's basically the same i absorb your energy and put it back out on you that kevin bacon's character does in first class so like i've mentioned in a few phoenix episodes already it's interesting to see where they do get certain things from in these films but it's like days of future past was also in a way trying to correct the mistakes they themselves made throughout the film they acknowledge the relationship that was developed between bobby and kitty again in x-men the last stand but the wrap-up Flash forward at the end that shows, I believe, the expansion in 2023, it would probably have to be. Bobby is with Rogue again, and Kitty is shown, at least in proximity, to Colossus. I think that was meant to be on purpose, to show a connection between the two of them like they have in the comics. But if you keep messing these things up, why do you keep then doing weirder and worse things to them? The portrayal of Apocalypse in this film, of Storm, of poor Psylocke. It's such a weird... You made a face when I said Psylocke, so I'm gonna let you go off on Psylocke for a minute while I recollect myself.
0: So I don't mean to be partial to the Marvel Telepath Telekinetic X-Men core women team, but there's a handful of women that gays really love, and it's Jean, Emma, Psylocke, Sage, and You should definitely put Storm and Dazzler in there, Rogue. Gay men love the X-Men's incredibly powerful Claremazon lineup. Claremazons, for those of you who don't check out X's for Podcast, is a term that means super powerful lady written by Chris Claremont. He's the guy who most X-Men stuff is sourced from. He created the Phoenix. He is responsible for the personalities of Wolverine, Nightcrawler, Storm. He's the guy who created every X-Man alongside his artist- Co creators from 1975 to just about 1991. So, a rather significant guy. Betsy has such a storied history. Her origins lie in the UK in 1975, where she's a superhero named Captain Britain's twin sister. She goes on to have her own incredible legacy, and it's just really unfortunate that Brian Singer admittedly doesn't have the sort of emotional attachment to the X Men that would allow him to key into these characters. And why fans love them. Betsy is beloved because of the things she's able to survive and the way she's able to remain a strong figure who doesn't lose who she is. She's body swapped and she's at one point like she has bionic eyes shoved into her head and she is devastatingly injured and no matter what, no matter what happens she doesn't give up and she comes back stronger the idea that she would just sycophantically serve apocalypse is insulting to anything that anybody that loves betsy
1: loves about her and then at the end of the film after apocalypse is defeated she just sort of glowers and walks off after the final battle like i literally turned to nico and i was like she's saying fuck this movie i'm out of here You know, the best thing that I can say about the misinterpretation of all these characters and all these stories is that I'm glad at the very least that now that X-Men is back under the full Marvel Studios banner and is reacquired by Disney, perhaps when they put the X-Men into the MCU, they can get them right. You know, I think the first films mostly soared on the fact that they were using big names like Halle Berry and Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen. And Hugh Jackman. Did I say Hugh Jackman? Have I said him twice? Well, he's hot twice, so it's fine. You know,
0: this is the thing that made him. He was really busy being Wolverine, and then Tristan and Kate Leopold is a Um,
1: Tristan and Isolde was... What's his name from the Veronica Mars movie? James Martin Starr. James Lipton. Why can't I think of this guy's name? His brother's really hot. He's dating Allison Bree. I'm like, Vincent Kartheiser!
0: Wait, no, she was married to him on Mad Men.
1: <laughs> no, Alexis Bledel is married to him in real life. That's Vincent Kartheiser. He's really gay. But he's not really gay, but he's obsessed with gay people. doesn't even matter anymore, but not his name! <laughs> I can't even remember who we're looking for to look them up anymore. <laughs> he played Harry Osborn in the first Spider-Man movies.
0: Oh! Um... Um, I don't even remember what I'm trying to recognize <laughs> <his> me. Uh, <laughs> James Garfield!
2: <laughs> Andrew McGillicuddy! <laughs>
0: oh, he's friends
1: with Seth Rogen.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: now we need to play back why I needed to know James Franco's name in the first place, though. He was Tristan and Tristan and Isolde. Yes, That's- he was in Tristan and Isolde, and <laughs> Hugh Jackman was Caitlyn appalled. Leopold. Leopold. Yep, with Meg Ryan. Funny enough, it also involved a bridge. Go figure. Okay, but these put Hugh Jackman on the map, and then by the time of the last one, he was a name. Having Hugh Jackman was still a big deal, and it's why Wolverine then got, like, Three movies to himself over the next decade x-men first class a lot of these actors were still pretty unknown nicholas holt was that kid from about a boy and skins jennifer lawrence was from that movie where she skinned a rabbit or something fassbender was still a star on the rise mcavoy had done some things but he himself wasn't exactly like a name that people were going after yet And I think that these new films having these fresh faces and this strong cast helped them. The big names, as we've said in the original trilogy, they clearly were just like, this is superhero slog.
0: And speaking of people who really on the rise when they took roles, I don't think there was anybody who was more attached to a meteoric project than the cast of Game of Thrones during that time period, it's so fascinating that Sophie Turner and Maisie Williams were both cast in two different unrelated X-Men projects around the same time. We have Maisie Williams cast as Rain, Moira McTaggart's Ward in New Mutants, although I am not sure we will see that connection there. And we have Sophie Turner, Mrs. Joe Jonas herself, Ooh. as Jean Grey, and I really need to say one more time i don't think sophie turner did a bad job i think she was given a really wooden script and i think she emoted beautifully so let's talk about why we're here sophie turner's turn as phoenix in apocalypse
1: it's really hard for me to tell if it's Sophie Turner's acting or if it is completely the script. I think there are characters that we are given very little of that perhaps do more with what they're given. But, you know, Jean Grey is also a really hard character to pin down. I have to imagine at some point they probably intimated to her that Dark Phoenix was coming and to be ready, but with The limited amount of script and material that she was given to work with. How do you, quote unquote, prepare for the coming of the Dark Phoenix other than, you know, just seeming kind of angry sometimes? I don't love about like 50% of the whole segment where she unleashes the Phoenix in this film because I think it is just really slow and drawn out. It has always reminded me of the scene from First Class where Magneto pushes the coin through Sebastian Shaw's head, but it, upon seeing the film again, I realized that it's not exactly the same. I had remembered some sort of Charles being like, Gene, the entire time. Not what happened, but there's a lot of like, Gene, I need your help, let go. And it's just, it's so drawn out and so much screaming. And I don't, I don't think screaming is the same as emoting. And it's a little bit ridiculous that the part you draw out is the
0: moment from when we decide that she should be the Phoenix to help save the day to the point where she actually manifests the raptor. It would be so much easier if you just gave us that faster, but had more buildup in the places that are important. All of the hints they gave us throughout the movie that her power was growing were a little bit too fast. I think within 25 minutes of being introduced to Jean, we discover that she's accidentally burning the walls at night because she's having such hot sex dreams. No,
1: because the phoenix is making her scorch walls in her sleep? I don't get it. And once again, it seems like we are going to be confronted with a version of the phoenix that is 100% Gene, which, as we have learned, is not completely genuine to the story of the phoenix. The phoenix itself is a separate cosmic entity, and while at different points of the story of the Dark Phoenix and the phoenix, There has been a nebulous amount of how much control Jean has and how much of the darkness comes from Jean herself, but it's still specifically a separate entity that attaches itself to her, and that's not the same as what we are already seeing in this portion of the film. The amounts of Jean's power and Dark Phoenix that we've seen in Apocalypse, it sort of makes me think of just an extended version of Jean's sacrifice at Alkali Lake, where She's just like, kind of powerful, but like, IDK, I might just be a weird kid, and then all of a sudden she does this huge thing, except here she doesn't die from it. One of the points of this
0: podcast was to take a look at the adaptations of the Dark Phoenix Saga and try and track how organic and real these are. Now, even if you take away all of the trappings, like Apocalypse Shouldn't Have Come First, Like, Days of Future Past is the story that almost directly follows the Dark Phoenix saga, so how it comes two films before is beyond me. If you take out of context that the Hellfire Club should have been involved in Gene's ascendancy to the Phoenix, and you just go by Gene's personal narrative, this is probably the least accurate version of the Phoenix to date. There is no sense of cosmic energy. There is no real journey to phoenixness for her she's just kind of like the phoenix from the minute we meet her and it's almost it's almost an underwhelming way to represent the story that is the phoenix the phoenix is about a woman who becomes something so much more and instead we're being shown someone who's already so much more burning brighter i don't know I don't think it's the worst story by any means, but this is in many ways the least accurate version of The Phoenix we've got.
1: And it's really frustrating to feel confident saying that even before we get the Dark Phoenix film itself, because so much of the setup already is leading in an inaccurate direction. You know, in trying to do my BTS for this episode, because I tried to do, you know, at least a cursory bit of research, but what I ultimately found is that the writers and directors haven't said anything before this film of Dark Phoenix about where they were heading with the character. At the very least, when I was researching the original X-Trilogy, in my X2 research, I found where they were saying, yes, that was the Phoenix, that was our plan for the next thing. The only thing that they really say about the student... Level characters is that they wanted to have a focus on Cyclops, Gene, and Storm in this film. That specific trio was referred to a few times, and yet those characters, I think, only share one scene together outside of the battle at the very end when they're clearly all students together. And they also talked a lot about how this film was meant to bring the new trilogy full circle and open up the potential for. New stories with these younger characters, but, like, now you're only getting one film.
0: I actually made that joke while we were watching Apocalypse. I joked that they were like, oh, look, we have all the time in the world. We can do whatever we want. Let's slowly develop this story and take our time with really random pieces, and let's drag out Quicksilver telling Magneto that he's his dad, and let's really enjoy the build up of some things while skipping the buildup of others. Oh, what do you mean we have one film?
1: And that's part of it, too. The things that they chose to give lingering focus on versus giving no development whatsoever to other things. Scott got so much more focus in this movie than Gene, than Storm. Even Quicksilver got more focus than them. I really enjoyed the characterization of Quicksilver in these two movies a lot more than I thought that I would. I'm not a huge Ryan Murphy fan, so I'm not exactly a fan of Evan Peters from as far back as... American Horror Story, I remember when he was on One Tree Hill, but I didn't think I would enjoy the character as much as I did on this watch. But then, like, there's these long pauses while he's having this conversation with Mystique about how Magneto's actually my dad. You're not surprising the audience, so I don't know why you are spending this long focusing on it, and then there's no payoff even in this film. I thought this was the end of your trilogy.
0: And it does call into question exactly how these films are supposed to work together. The first three are a trilogy, and the third one's been kicked out. The next three are a trilogy, and the middle one kind of branches back to the first set, and then there's this one. So it's kind of like, there's two three-movie trilogies, and Days of Future Past is kind of nebulously connected, even though the movie that's really the linchpin is first class- I find myself really frustrated by
1: this franchise. But at least it's almost dead.
0: One of the things that I appreciated is that if they are going to have a final film in this franchise, let it be Dark Phoenix. Let it be the thing that has always threatened to burn away the X-Men. I'm not sure how New Mutants can follow it. In fact, I'm kind of relieved that the Fox Studio folks have said that Gifted and Legion take place in a timeline more connected to the Last Standverse and not the current X-Verse. I really do appreciate that because otherwise I'm left scratching my head how some of this is possible. I'm a huge fan of the show Legion and I don't know that you would be able to make that
1: show and the movies we've had really coexist the way they should. They've done so many things in these movies that make everything so confusing. Mutants are so hush hush not really talked about in the original trilogy that it's almost like it feels like some people have never even heard of what a mutant is and yet we saw mutants battle on live tv in 1973. It all just makes everything very confusing to the point where I kind of hope that Dark Phoenix is just literally an apocalypse, burn the entire world to the ground. Why not? It's not going to connect to anything in the future at this point anyway and I wonder how much... Being aware that this end could be coming influenced their storytelling going forward for that film.
0: While I don't want to see Gene devour the planet Earth, I would not hate it if the X-Men all sacrificed themselves to restart the universe. This will all happen again, but hopefully this time it won't be so bad. Something. I really just need them to go out in a big fiery blaze because that's what they're trying to make it clear they're doing. Ultimately, this project was not about commenting on the X-Men film franchise. It was about commenting on the adaptation of Jean Grey as the Phoenix. Taking a look at the first trilogy and the second trilogy, I'm left scratching my head where exactly the Phoenix is. It doesn't seem so much like they were looking to tell the story of Jean Grey becoming the Phoenix and leading the X-Men to great trials. This is much more the story of a woman who can't control her power and everyone reacting to it. In that regard... These two franchises, no matter how much they can attempt to focus on Gene in this last
1: film, have failed to adapt the Phoenix. You know, it's funny when we first met, and I was such an X-Men novice that all I knew was the movies, you had this one friend who was very obstinate about their love of the character Emma Frost. And frankly, I'd never fucking heard of her in my life. I had no idea who that was, and this friend was like so offended at the notion of someone not having heard of Emma Frost, but she wasn't represented in the original trilogy. At the very least, I could say from the original trilogy and even these films that I understand that Jean Grey is an important character in the X-Men. That much at the very least comes across, but who the character is, what her story is, and what her largest story being the Phoenix Saga is, I don't think that I have seen anywhere in any of these major films so far more than 10 to 20% accurately represented. And it's just sort of weird. And I hate that I keep using that word, but it is. It's just weird. Why would you go so far out of your way to adapt something and have it be so wrong? It's like that version of Superman that they almost made where he didn't fly and he would have been wearing a weird costume and like all this other stuff. And they didn't make it because it was so far from the character. It's not like there's a lot of things that you can miss about an iconic character like Jean to have gotten her so wrong so many times in so many ways. And I want to close things out with a quote
0: I found online discussing the value of the continuity in the X-Men film franchise. A poster on Reddit wrote, Brian Singer literally threw in the final Striker is Mystique twist at the end of Days of Future Past, which should have changed everything, but this was completely dropped and forgotten. They also introduced a teenage Emma Frost in the 1970s, in 2009's Wolverine Origins, and then had a walking and bald Charles Xavier. In the next film, First Class, they introduced an adult Emma Frost in the early 60s, who died by the early 70s, and saw Charles get paralyzed around this time. He also didn't lose his hair until the 1980s due to the encounter with Apocalypse. Havoc did not seem to age between 1960 and the mid-80s, and his powers were shown to come from his chest in First Class and Apocalypse, but from his hands in Days of Future Past. Although I would like to point out he does use his powers from his hands in Apocalypse as well. There were so many inconsistencies in this film franchise. Hoping for one character to get a strong narrative arc was just about impossible.
1: And it's not just the inconsistencies, but rather the forced consistency. One of the things that I noticed immediately in Days of Future Past is that they went right back to using the X-Men themes from the original trilogy, which had been overwritten by composer Henry Jackman when he took over the composing job for X-Men First Class. None of the themes carried on from X-Men First Class. We immediately went back to the original style of score when composer John Ottman returned from X2, He wasn't even the original composer on X-Men, and he certainly didn't do the score for X-Men The Last Stand because he followed Brian Singer to Superman Returns, but he carried the themes from the original trilogy into this new one. It felt like as soon as Brian Singer and Simon Kinberg and that brain trust took back over, they were like, we're just going to go back to the things that we know of X-Men, and we're just going to hope you focus on these loud blaring horns of this is X-Men, and not notice all of these blurry edges where we've really flubbed a lot of things about these characters. But unfortunately, especially for a franchise like X Men, which has such fervent fans and such a hardcore fan base, they're going to notice stuff like that. We sure do. And I guess there isn't really much left to say about the first six X Men team films. The next episode that we do is going to be covering. A few bits and pieces from different places, a few episodes of Wolverine and the X-Men that focused on Jean Grey, and things like that, things that used themes from the Dark Phoenix without actually doing a full Dark Phoenix story, because if we've learned anything from this franchise so far, it's that they get a lot of strange things they do from odd sources, so there could potentially be something that was referenced in the most minor way, in the most weird bit of canon that they will draw from in Dark Phoenix, Unfortunately, we have no idea where that film is going to go, so we kind of have to talk about every little bit of gene that we can. But until next time, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Kevoreally, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y, or you can find me on our still semi-brand new Facebook page where I just kick around posting fun media news that fall within our realm of interest, whether it's Marvel or Pokemon or lots of really cool, cute, fun stuff. You can also find my work, along with Nico's and the lovely Tori and Taryn, over on KidRiotComics.com, where we produce our own super-cool, super-queer superhero team with amazing stories whose backstories we don't continuously flub up. As always, you can check me out on other shows here on Cage Club, like
0: Exes for Podcast, the aforementioned comic book podcast where we take a look at the Uncanny X-Men comic book franchise starting in 1975 with Giant Size X-Men number one and make our way forward through the misadventures of Marvel's Merry Mutants, now in the 1980s Mutant Expansion. You can also check me out on Now and Again, where we take a look at pop music through the lens of the Now That's What I Call Music series, currently taking a look at the Carly Rae Jepsen songbook. Don't forget to check out my music project over at Facebook.com slash Action Duo, and check me out on Instagram, where I post all sorts of pictures and videos at NicoAction, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And until we return to 1207 Grey Malkin Lane, we're going to see
1: you guys. Call.